That is an encouragement and a blessing. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Let's stand together out of respect for the Word of God as we begin reading in verse 12. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. I have a quote that I'm going to work on off of my phone. Sorry. Not right now, but that's why my phone is here. It's ubiquitous. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, it says, And the angel, and to the angel of the church at Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know, let me just update the language as I go, I know your works, and where you live, even where Satan's seat is, and you hold fast, securely to my name. You've not denied my faith. And in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have them there that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So you have also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows saving he that receives it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless now the reading and preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that we will understand this passage of Scripture in its context and what it means for the future of these young people, especially these that are going out into full-time Christian ministry. Lord, I pray that you'll give them wisdom as they go. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seating. Before I get to the message... I thought it a good occasion before the weather warms up too much to suggest to some of you, especially some of you education majors, you might want to teach in Arizona (laughs) where it's warm in the wintertime. As you know, there are Christian schools across the, the nation that are desperate for teachers. We have a growing Christian school, vibrant Christian school. We need some teachers. I'm, I'll be in the, what do you call it, the dining hall, the dining common, something like that. I'll be over there after this. If there are anybody, that, if you want to come talk to me about anything, talk about teaching, talk about ministry, uh, talk about anything like that, I'll be there sort of hanging out, drinking some coffee. Um, I'd be glad to talk with you about anything and any questions you have. Um, even if it's pointed questions, maybe even things about the message here. But we would love to talk to some of you, especially about teaching in Arizona. And um, I mean, there's some, I mean, I understand you don't move to Arizona for the winter weather, but it's a nice perk. Anyway, let's go on. Um, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he had found out that there was a problem in the church at Corinth. The problem that existed in the church at Corinth, now there were many problems in the church at Corinth. A pastor once told me uh, early on in, the, in ministry, he said, if you have a church with any kind of problem, just preach through the book of 1 Corinthians and eventually you'll deal with it. 
And so um, one of the problems that he had at church at Corinth was sexual sin. And, uh, and so he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He describes the, the problem. He says, you have some among you that have sexual sin that is no, not so much named among the Gentiles. And if you understand the nature of uh, the moral climate of the city of Corinth and the moral climate of the Roman Empire at the time, to say that was saying a lot. And that was, of course, that there was the sin of incest. One should have his father's wife. And so the Apostle Paul deals with how the church is supposed to deal with sin in the church. Now, this is the same problem that the Apostle John is dealing with here, but it's not really the Apostle Paul, John. It's John conveying a message that is coming directly from Jesus Christ. Now, I, I, we talk about various types of inspiration and how God used uh, inspiration and... Um, uh, you know, inspiration wasn't where somebody just wrote, uh, wrote down exactly what Jesus said. God used people. But through, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when the messages are being given to these churches, these are direct quotes directly from Jesus Christ to these churches. And so he's dealing with the same problem. In fact, this, the, the problems that are going on in the church in, in the church at Pergamos were problems that went on in all of the churches throughout the beginning of the church age. And frankly, there's still problems that we're facing today in churches. And so we want to deal with the problem that is going on in the church at, at Pergamos. And when we deal with the problem that is going on in the church at Pergamos, it's important for under us to understand that this has to do with the purity of the church. Um, there are times that folks look at Christian fundamentalism, especially Baptist fundamentalism, which Maranatha Baptist University represents, and they look at this as sort of an isolated splinter group among faithful Christian people that becomes, that is sort of preoccupied with less important things and not so much preoccupied with the important things with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're just sort of quirky, sort of the Baptist version of Mennonites and Amish people. They're living, you know, way back in, in the dark ages and can't seem to get with it, can't seem to get with where we are now. And I want to explain to you, there's more to it than that. All of these things are founded in Scripture and are extremely important and are described here. Now, so let's take a look at the church at Pergamos. First of all, take a look at how their Jesus is described to them. Now, remember, in Ephesus, he's the one that walks among the seven candlesticks. He's the one that's present. He's the one that's there. Now, in the, in the church at Smyrna, he was the one that died and was alive again. Now, there is that sense of, at Ephesus, I see your works, I know what's going on, I'm there, I'm present. In, in the church at Smyrna, it's one who had the victory over death, and so this is the persecuted church, and we want you to take uh, great encouragement to the fact that Jesus Christ lives again, and he's the first fruits of that, that resurrection, and you're going to rise again. Now we come to the church of Pergamos, and when we come to the church of Pergamos, the description is a little bit different. It says here in verse 12, and to the angel of the church of Pergamos, right, these things saith the one who has the sharp sword with two edges. Now, the description of Jesus is related 
to the problems of the church. It's related to the message of the church. And there Jesus is the one that is a sharp sword with two edges. But where do we see other passages of Scripture with the description of the sharp sword with two edges? Well, Hebrews chapter 4, for instance. Most of you have this passage of Scripture memorized. But let me just go ahead and read it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, that the word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, what does this sword represent? Well, it represents a couple of things. First of all, it represents the idea of discernment. That idea of coming to and dividing between that which is right and wrong, that which is moral, that which is, and that which is immoral, that which is correct doctrine, that which is sound doctrine, and that which is false doctrine. It discerns not only on the surface, but even to the depths of the heart. And so it, it speaks of discernment, but it also speaks, a sword also speaks of judgment, of declaring judgment, of making a decision. And so there's this message that is coming to the church of Pergamos. And here's what it says. I know your works, and where you dwell. I know where you live. There's a textual difference there. It depends on what Bible you're reading. I know where you live. He says, I, I know the surroundings that you're in. He says, these things saith he which hath the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. Uh, Pergamos was a particularly wicked city. There was a temple there. Um, it was the temple of Asclepius. By the way, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was the Greek god of healing. If you've ever seen this symbol of modern medicine, the pole with the serpent on the pole, but by the way, that's not the Old Testament speaking of healing. That's the Greek god, Asclepius. And so they were in a very wicked city. It was also a very immoral city. And so they, I mean, they were in a place that was very difficult. He says, and, and you're there and you have hung on to your identity as Christians. You've hung on to your identity with Jesus Christ. You have claimed the name of Christ in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty, even when the difficulty was so great that there was one among you that was, that was martyred. He says that this, where Satan's seed is, you hold fast to my name. You've not denied my faith even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. There is something for us to understand here. And that is just because you are faithful in one area of ministry does not mean you are right in all areas of ministry. And there is a tendency for sometimes young people, um, sometimes other people in ministry to take a look at some sort of, some superstar Christian, some dynamic Christian leader and say, wow, they're saying such good things in this particular area and they're taking such a good stand in this particular area. I'm going to follow them. But not everything about them is right. And God calls upon you to be discerning. 
and to understand what is right and wrong. And that is not always easy. It requires thinking. Now, let's take a look at the problems that were all going on, particularly in Pergamos. Here's what it says, but I have a few things against thee. It's described that there are some that hold to the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. We go all the way back to the Old Testament and the story of Balaam. And, and of course, um, the enemies of God wanted to use Balaam to curse the children of Israel and he couldn't do that. But instead, he taught the children of Israel to commit more immorality by marrying with the Midianites, and then, as a result of that, committing idolatry with them. In other words, the path to violating the most basic of all the commandments was through false or wrong associations. And then he says here, so you also have them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, if you all want to open a can of worms, start getting theologians talking about who the Nicolaitans were and what they believed. Um, there are folks that have tried to define this by taking, a word, um, taking the word here and trying to figure out what it means based upon the etymology of the word. I have my own view, and my own view typically is this. You go into the early church and the false doctrines of the early church, the various sects and groups that were uh, opposed to the basics of, of Christianity and the basics of sound doctrine, had a tendency to be named after the people that produced or uh, pro promoted that particular doctrine. The early church fathers, many of them, traced this name all the way back to Acts chapter 6. And the name is found in Acts chapter 6 with the selection of what I believe are the deacons of the first church. And the first, one of the names that we find in Acts chapter 6 of those that were chosen was a fellow by the name of Nicholas. It says, And the saying pleased the entire multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. And we know a couple of things about Nicholas just by this description. First of all, he had changed his religious persuasion at least twice. After all, he seems to be a Gentile first, then he's a proselyte to Judaism, and then from being a proselyte to Judaism, he's a conversion to Christianity. Now, there's an argument among the early church fathers about the particular beliefs of those people who called themselves the Nicolaitans or those that were the followers of this man. And so there are some debates about that. Some believe that he actually became an apostate and began teaching um, doctrines that were contrary to the church and specific ones that I'll get to in a moment. There are others that argued that no, he didn't actually apostatize, but there were, others, there were others later on that took the things that he was teaching and twisted them and called themselves followers of him uh, of, and, and taught things that he didn't actually believe. It doesn't really matter. What we really know here is this, that there was a group of people in the church 
that were being tolerated in the congregation that was at Pergamos, that were involved in two types of sins in particular. One of those had to do with sexual promiscuity or fornication, and the other one was idolatry. By the way, both of those which were involved were involved and part of the pagan worship of the day. Now, the, the accusation against the church at Pergamos is not that the leadership or the people, that the, the most important people that were in this church were involved in these types of sins. The accusation was that they were tolerating these kinds of sins. And this is really important for us to understand. Because it is not just what you do, but what you allow especially in church leadership, that becomes something by which you will judge, be judged by Jesus Christ. Now, so what you have is people that are, they have a church. I don't know how they work their church membership. If they had people that were just attending the church that were involved in idolatry and involved in sexual types of sin. But we do know that it was a problem in the early church. In fact, it was a problem from the beginning of the early church. As soon as the gospel had been preached unto the Gentiles, the question came up, how are we supposed to live? And how are the, what are the things that we are supposed to expect of the Gentiles? Now, you've grown up in Christianity and there is sort of an established sex ethic that is part of Christianity. Um, you've grown up in fundamentalism, many of you, and so there is a sort of established biblical standard by those doctrines, what we call the fundamentals of the faith, by which we judge that which is true and that which is in error. And so that has been part of our life. But in the early church, it wasn't so easy because you had the Gentiles who were growing up in a pagan environment in which sexual promiscuity was not only allowed, it was looked on as part of worship. Prostitution was part of temple worship throughout the Roman and Greek world. It's kind of hard for us to imagine from our perspective here but it, is, but it really is not that hard to imagine when you start reading articles about what people are doing even in the United States of America to, today in the name of Jesus Christ. These issues that you see here in this church are going to be issues, are issues that I have faced in my ministry and are going to be issues that you have faced in your ministry. And you are going to have to take a stand. You are going to have to decide whether you will take a stand against sin and not associate yourself in any approving way with false doctrine or sexual immorality, like the Apostle Paul des described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. By the way, when he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he calls these, these so-called Christians. They call themselves, they're the so-called Christians. And he describes some specific sins that are, that are sins for which you are required to put people out of the congregation. This is, this is one of the things that the early uh, fundamentalists faced when they were facing the issues of uh, doctrinal compromise within the church. You had from the 1860s on and the idea of German rationalism, the rationalism that uh, just permeated uh, um, 
American and European higher learning, and especially in the advent of Charles Darwin and the origin of the species and um, origins and all of that, and you had Christians who wanted to be accepted in academic circles. And this is also one of the things. A lot of times, doctrinal deviations come into the church through the academic world. And we'll talk about why that happens. Um, sexual deviations with the, in the church come in through the culture. But both of these things are things that you're going to have to deal with. And so, say, why did this happen? Why in the world were they willing to tolerate false doctrine, idolatry, which is the worship of another god? Why were they willing to tolerate that? Why were they willing to tolerate sexual immorality and moral degradation within the congregation? Why were people saying, listen, that's not for me, but it's okay for you? Why were they willing to do that? Well, there are some reasons why that happens. First of all, one of the reasons is pride. It's interesting, the church at Corinth. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, you should have mourned that this sin was in your congregation, but instead, you were proud. We're open-minded. This is one of the reasons why um, different types of sin entered the church. It's because of our sense of pride. We want to be liked. We want to be thought as smart. We want to be thought as loving. We want to be accepted by the world. One of the, I, I hope you figured out by, by now, if you keep chasing the approval of this world, you'll compromise everything that you believe and you'll never get it anyway. This was one of the problems in early fundamentalism. The early fundamentalists understood that there was something wrong with what the theological liberals, or what they called them at the time, the modernists, were teaching. They began denying the Genesis account. When you begin denying the Genesis account, uh, then you start to question whether the Bible is truly inspired, and then you start to deny things like the miracles that are in Scripture. And once you deny the miracles that are in Scripture, next thing you know, you're denying the, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Which, so then you're denying the deity of Jesus Christ, and then you're denying the miracle of the resurrection and the ju justification by faith alone. And eventually, you have nothing left. And one of the questions of the early fundamentalist was this, at what point, what doctrines are those that are essential to Christianity, in fact, so essential to Christianity that without them, you don't have Christianity anymore? And so they began wrangling. They began talking with one another. They began having discussions with one another. And just talking about what are the foundational doctrines. These types of questions have been questioned. This wasn't something new in the church. These types of theological questions are things that the church has been wrangling with since there was a New Testament church. The early church fathers were dealing with such things as the deity of Jesus Christ and the nature of what books would be included in the canon and what books would not be included in the canon. And they were arguing through those, through those things. When you come to the Reformation, you have people in the Reformation that are arguing with such things as what is salvation by grace alone? 
And what, is the, and what is the authority of the church? Is the authority of the church the word of God? Is the authority of the church uh, the edicts of people and the history of the church and all of those things? So they began arguing through those things. We come to the 20th century and we're arguing things like the inspiration of Scripture. Every generation has its theological challenges. And you will be called upon... I, I don't, it's hard for me to imagine that I'm the age that I am, but you will be called upon to face things that my generation didn't dream about. It was 30, 40 years ago that we wouldn't have dreamed about dealing with same-sex marriage as an issue within the church or gender identity as an issue within the church. The early fundamentalists, even the modernists, didn't argue about that kind of stuff. But we will be arguing about those, that kind of stuff. You say, well, I, what I want to do is I want to just go out and win people and disciple them through Jesus Christ. And you can end up like the church at Pergamos if you don't pay attention to these issues. One of the things is pride. Of course, the fundamentalists dis discerned this. They thought about this. And eventually um, separated um, from others and separated from the false teachers. When we go come to the 1940s, and in the 1940s, uh, there was a group of people who decided, listen, we don't like being looked upon as ignorant. We don't like to be looked upon as, as uneducated. And there were some very intelligent, very well-educated people within the ranks of fundamentalism. But one of the things about our pride, and especially in academic circles, is smart guys always want to be recognized as smart guys. And educated guys always want to be recognized as educated guys. And so the idea of peers, being peers, and peer review, and how people that are educated like you look at you as intelligent becomes very important. And so they began to compromise their faith. They were called at the time the new evangelicals. But what they were doing, the sin that they were committing, and it was sin, we'll get to that in a moment, was exactly the sin that the church at Pergamos was committing. They were sacrificing their faith, the associations of their faith, for the sake of pride. Uh, it can, it's the pride, it's desired to be liked by lost people. An article in Table Talk, which was put out by R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul Jr. wrote this a number of years ago. Um, I have the date here, but I'm reading it off my phone, and it's hard to scroll around. He said this, as I write, I find myself visiting Gwinnett County, Georgia. It's a good thing that I'm only visiting if I actually lived here. I'd find myself on the wrong side of the law. It seems that the country, the county recently passed a law that says you may not have more than eight people living in a single household at a time. He said, me, my wife, and my seven children put us over the limit. The law, I'm pretty sure, wasn't designed to keep families like mine out of the county. That wasn't the express intent of the county commissioners. Instead, I believe the intent, though this too wasn't expressed, was to discourage certain immigrant groups from settling here. Rather than pass a law against those immigrant groups, which wouldn't be politically correct, they came up with their clumsy solution that also affects large families. 
This particular law has run and smack into another law, the law of unintended consequences. Such always happens when we try to end around honesty. When we try to have our way while hiding our convictions, we lose everything that we seek. He says it's no new insight to note that in America, the evangelical church is widely anemic. We are so earthly-minded that we're no heavenly good. The anemia comes from worldliness. But where does the worldliness come from? Like any other sin we've adopted, we have options for placing this advent. We could argue that it began with the last fad to hit the church, or we could go back to the beginning, to the garden. Both have their advantages. It might be more helpful, however, to see that the beginning of this descent at the height of the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Fundamentalism is so named for a fundamental reason. By the way, R.C. Sproul Jr. considered himself an evangelical. I want you to understand this. He didn't consider himself a fundamentalist. Here's what he said. Fundamentalism is so named for a fundamental reason. It was a movement that concerned itself with affirming, defending, and maintaining the fundamentals of the faith. As a movement, it affirmed the authority of the Bible. It affirmed the accounts therein of creation, of miracles, the virgin birth, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It affirmed the necessity of conversion through faith in the finished work of Christ. It affirmed, in short, the defining issues of historical evangelicalism. Why, then, isn't the controversy called the evangelical modernist controversy? To get that answer, we must ask another question. What is it that distinguishes evangelicals from fundamentalists? Suddenly, our problem becomes clear. An evangelical, listen to this very carefully. This is an evangelical saying this about his movement. An evangelical is a fundamentalist that wants the respect of modernists and sells his soul to get it. That is to say, the difference between a fundamentalist and an evangelical isn't the content of their respective beliefs, but the way in which those beliefs are held. Fundamentalists, to their credit, cling to the fundamentals like a pit bull on a T-bone. I kind of like that. There was nothing attractive or sophisticated about it, but everyone knew you'd never get the two apart. The evangelical, on the other hand, sought to find, at least culturally, a middle ground. Yes, we believe in the authority of the Bible, but we believe it for nice, professional, academic reasons. Indeed, all that we believe, we believe for nice, professional, academic reasons. What separates evangelicals from fundamentalists is what we evangelicals, that we evangelicals don't breathe fire. We have fancy degrees hanging on our studies instead of pictures of Billy Sunday. I don't, I don't have a picture of Billy Sunday. We evangelicals are they who cut this deal with the modernists. We will call you brother if you will call us scholar. Do you see that? Why is it that we will, we will tolerate false doctrine? Because we want to be respected. Because we want to be liked. Let me encourage you, as you go out into ministry, there is only one person with, from whom you should desire respect. And only one person from whom you have to be liked, and his name is Jesus Christ. Please don't misunderstand, he says. The point isn't that the right way to believe in the fundamentals is to be stupid. Instead, the point is that the right way to believe in the fundamentals is with a holy, H-O-L-Y, 
indifference to what others think about us. Anything less leads us to right to where we are. That is, any movement that begins with a fear of those we are seeking to win has already been won by those that are feared. And this was what was going on in the church at Pergamos. They had a culture that was given to idolatry. They had a culture that was given to sexual immorality. And they wanted to be liked in the culture. So they were willing to tolerate that type of sin in the church. Even though they didn't really disagree with it. They're willing to have it because... They want to make sure that everybody likes them. Sometimes we think that it's the motivation. It's we have to show them that we like them so that we can win them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't call people from the wickedness and the immorality and the sadness and the defeat and the carnality of the world to bring them into the church to have a wickedness and sadness and carnality in the church. Kenneth Myers in his book, All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes. If you haven't read that book, you ought to. It's about the relationship between Christianity and culture. He said that what we have done in Christianity sometimes is we've so liked the culture, but we really don't want to be part of the culture. So what we do is we create a a Christian version of the culture. And so he says, you know, we don't, uh, we don't like the soap operas and all the stuff that is in soap operas, so we have Christian soap operas. And we didn't, you know, what's going on in the worldly nightclubs? So we have Christian nightclubs. And we start doing all of our own Christian versions of everything. By the way, this applies to all different kinds of stuff, including music and entertainment. And so we create all of our Christian versions of everything. And he said, next thing you know, instead of being in the world but not of the world, we're of the world but not in the world. And we have ceased to be able to call people from darkness to light because we're in our own darkness. This is where you can go. If you're not careful, sometimes it's not pride. Sometimes it's not the desire to be liked but the, with, by the lost. Sometimes it's just the unwillingness to work through the hard issues. It's, <laughs> let's talk about sex for a minute. Is that okay? I mean, we're all... You know, you're mostly here 18 years old and older. By the way, the sexual issue has been an issue for all of mankind. It was an issue in the church, the early church. We talk about the problem here, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And we talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, most likely it had to do with sexual promiscuity in the church. There, was, there were horrible things that were going on in the name of Christianity at the time. There was a fellow by the name of Carpocrates who taught that the church and the leadership of the church, especially the men that were in the church, should have everything in common. So you share your house and you share your land and you share your property and you share your wives. And yes, one of the things that he taught was wife swapping in the early church. It was one of the things that the early church fathers were fighting vehemently against, and it might be exactly what what Jesus Christ is speaking about here. Because there is all kinds of sexual immorality that has been committed through the centuries, not just in the name of Jesus Christ. You say, well, not recently. What about Mormonism? It's going on around the world today. 
In fact, it's going on. If you, you can go on the internet and find people that say, there was a group of, a couple in Florida, you know, where they said, here are the things that we're into. We're into Jesus, bodybuilding, and swinging. If you know what swinging is. It's exactly the same thing. He said, you have to deal with the sexual immorality that is in your church. That we have to de- which means that we also have to deal with other issues that are in the church. Because the Apostle, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's talking to the church of Corinth, deals with other things. You know, we have things that we have to face. Such things as sex in the church, false teachers, human sexuality, the nature of gender, alcohol. You say, well, that, that's really not an issue historically, Pastor Shaw. That's, you know, that's just something that's 20th century that has to do with the temperance movement. Oh, no, no, no. The believers in the early part of the 20th century, the last part of the 19th century, were dealing with something new. Something that did not exa- exist in the same way that existed at the time of Christ. And that was the industrialization of the alcohol market where you went from very small bits of alcohol that were in the things that people drank to high-content alcohol, so much so. And it overtook the country so, so much so that there, was, there were people that came to the United States and considered the United States a nation of drunkards. We, uh, we need to be honest with ourselves about this, and we can't just try to have what we want or what the world will like. Things of alcohol, drug use. You start allowing for alcohol. What about marijuana? I talk to young people all the time. And they'll ask these questions. Technology, worship, pornography. We have to wrangle through these things to discern what is biblical obedience and what is not and what comes under these categories of making yourself a so-called Christian, those things that are allowable and not allowable in the church. And we have to decide at some point, what are the things where, what are the things where we have you know, good people disagree and where they don't? Polycarp, I mentioned him yesterday. Polycarp went to Rome. When he went to Rome, he went to Rome on a mission. He wanted to solve two problems when he went to the church at Rome. First of all, he wanted to deal with the heresy of Marcion. Marcion had a problem. His problem was this. He couldn't seem to reconcile the idea of the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was this God who had all these rules and uh, required all these rules and put people to death and, and you know, commanded the children of Israel to commit genocide and all of that. And then you have the God of the New Testament, who's the God of Jesus Christ, who tells us to be loving and kind and all of that. So his conclusion was that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. Of course, whenever we try to solve Bible problems with our own intellect and add stuff into the Bible that isn't in the, problem, in the Bible to solve our own mental deficiency, you end up in all kinds of problems. The second issue that he wanted to deal with was when to celebrate Easter, when to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there was a division in the early church. There were some that believed that you should celebrate Easter on the Passover, the Jewish Passover. And there were some that believed you should celebrate Easter on Sunday, the particular Sunday in which we celebrate it even today. And there was an argument in the early church about what is the right day to celebrate Easter. Now he went away having converted many of the followers of Marcion to Orthodox Christianity. And he took his stand on that and said, this is false doctrine. But when he left Rome, he also said, listen, this issue of the day in which we celebrate the Resurrection, good people can differ on. You have to have the wisdom 
you have to have the discernment to know the difference. See, this is a command of Jesus Christ to take a look at the problems that are facing the church and come to biblical conclusions on that. And it's not just something that is a good idea. It is the command of God. In 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings or preaching. And then it says, prove all things. Now, what 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 is saying is, put everything to the test. You know what that means? I have to make a theological decision about this thing and the use of it. I need to put it to the test. And sometimes what we do is we put things that are in the past to the test, but we don't test them in our modern circumstance. He says, put everything to the test. He says, hang on to the good stuff. By the way, this changes the interpretation of verse 22. And get rid of all the bad stuff. Abstain from evil wherever it appears. When abstain, it, this is not saying abstain from everything that looks like it might be evil. That's not the proper interpretation of that verse. He says, prove. Hang on to the good stuff. Get rid of the bad stuff. Simple as that. And so we have this responsibility to prove, to hang on to the good stuff, to get rid of the bad stuff. This is extremely important that we test all things. We're going to have to come up with a theology of pornography. By the way, we end up with this cognitive dissonance where you say, this thing is wrong, but I'm doing this thing. This thing is wrong, but I'm doing this thing. You will not stay there forever. Eventually, you will do one of two things. You will abandon the thing that you think is wrong, or you will declare the thing okay to salve your guilty conscience. And you have an obligation as you work forward into the future to discern these things. And these things aren't things that you will just discern on your own. It's going to take godly people getting together and wrangling through the principles of Scripture and coming to a conclusion like the early fundamentalists did. And frankly, I'm involved in the FBFI. That's one of the purposes of the FBFI. I know that people think, oh, you guys, you just step back and you pronounce judgment upon everybody else. One of the things that we do is have discussion about things and wrangle through stuff and talk through stuff. And I put guys in the same room who believe different things. Medical ethics, technology. Now, I want you to notice what it says here as we go back to Revelation chapter 2. It says here, repent. If you don't do the hard things and be spiritually discerning, and separate from those who are teaching false doctrine. It's sin. That's what he says here. But I have a few things against you. Um, you hold the doc- you put you commit fornication. So so you have them that have to do the doc- doctrine of the Nicolaitans. In his response in verse sixteen, this is what he says you're supposed to do: repent. You know what you repent of? You repent of sin. 
You say, well, how, how can it possibly be sin? Well, the book of 2 John chapter 7, uh, verse 7 and 8 says this. If you approve, you bid God's speed to false teachers, you become a partaker of their evil deeds. So there's no in-between. There's no just, when it comes to these things that are the core issues that the New Testament defines, and we can apply New Testament scriptures to these principles, when it, when it comes to these issues, you have to declare them sin, and you have to deal with them within the church, and you have to deal with them within your own personal relationships, and you, and you have to separate, and if you don't separate, you become partaker of their evil deeds. You're aiding and abetting. There's no in-between. You don't do this first, notice what it says. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you don't practice this particular doctrine, and you're not obedient in this area of compromise and separation, and your relationship to sin, you will eventually end up fighting against Jesus Christ. And as James Weldon said, James Weldon Johnson said, your arm's too short to box with God. This is your calling. This is essential. This is important. The Apostle Paul dealt with this principle. There's a wonderful thing as we finish up here. It says, repent, I will come to you. I'll fight against you. But he said, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of times what would happen in churches, church groups, is you'd find out there's a problem. And maybe it's been in your midst for a while. while but you start to notice, wait a minute, there's a problem. And then you step back and you say, we've got to deal with this. We didn't even recognize it to be a problem to begin with, but all of a sudden it's a problem. This happened with the early fundamentalists. You had the people being trained in modernist theology and nobody in the church and the denominations really noticed it very much until some young guy showed up from seminary, to, from seminary to pastor a local church and people in the congregation that did not know what was going on in the seminary started listening to the preaching and realizing, wait a minute, he doesn't believe the Bible is inspired. And that's where the controversy started when people finally realized that this was permeating their church. And then they started to respond but it's not too late to respond. The Apostle Paul, sometimes it's ignorance that's in the church. The Apostle Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth. And he challenged them concerning their false practice, which was tolerating somebody in the church that was involved in immorality, and they were proud about it. And he rebuked them, and he rebuked them very harshly. He wasn't a nice guy about it. You say, well, you need, to, you need to speak the truth in love. But what people usually mean by that is don't say what you really mean. But speaking the truth in love some, sometimes speak, means speaking very directly to the issue. And so the Apostle Paul spoke very directly to the issue. And then he writes back to the, to the Corinthian church in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and he talks about this. He said, great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I'm exceeding joyful in all your tribulation. And then he talks about this church. He said, he said for though, verse 8, I made you sorry with a letter, I don't regret it. 
Though I did repent, for I perceived that the same letter made you sorry, but for a reason now we rejoice. Not that you were made sorrow, but that you sorrowed to repentance. You repented of this. I made you sorrowful after a godly sorrow, after a godly manner, that you might receive damage, that, that you weren't damaged by us, but you were helped by me. For godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world works death. For behold, this selfsame thing, you sorrowed after a godly sort, carefulness is wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, what revenge in all things. Ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. The church at Corinth repented of the sin that Paul confronted them about and they were restored to a place of blessing. The issue of compromise and standing against compromise is not the isolated practice of a few kooky fundamentalists. It is one of the core responsibilities of the New Testament church. And what is the responsibility of the church collectively is also a responsibility for you individually. I want to urge you as you go out into the future to take a stand for Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless. Lord, I pray that you will make these young people stalwarts for you. That you'll give them a heart of discernment. Lord, I pray that they won't do everything that every previous generation did. None of us are perfect. None of us are right in everything. Lord, I pray that they will affirm where we have been right and correct where we have been wrong. Lord, I pray that they will stand upon our shoulders and grow closer in obedience to you and a pleasing stand before you. Lord, I pray that they will not compromise the faith, but through an effective and righteous and biblically obedient stand be effective in the world in reaching people with the gospel of Christ and teaching them to follow you in humility and obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.